Welcome back, students, to the lore of the Iron Kingdoms, War Machines, and Hordes. I, of course, am Professor Caster, and of course, the lore is brought to us by Privateer Press and all of their fantastic writers. Today, we will be continuing discussing the warlocks from the Circle Obros, as well as completing every warlock of Obros that we know of that's in the lore and in the game. Alrighty, looks like we're beginning with Cromac the Ravenous, Circle Thorn Warlock. Barbarian chieftain, war leader of his people, living nightmare, feaster of human flesh, murderer of untold hundreds, all of these describe Cromac the Ravenous. When he walks as a man, silence surrounds him as gathered Tharn await his command for the chance to kill or die as he wills. When Cromac draws upon the worm to transform into a beast, wild things hear the howl and leap to obey. From the deepest hearts of black wilderness, he comes seeking not conquest, but slaughter and destruction. The druids of the Circle Oberos do not count him among their number, and consider him a sword wielded only reluctantly, only not easily sheathed once drawn. Once the Tharn were human, now they enjoy the closer link to the beast of all shapes than any other mortals who walk Cain. Cromac is old enough to have witnessed how close his people came to extinction just a few short decades ago. Morrowinds claim their gods cursed the Tharn with infertility for the depravity of feasting on human flesh. Cromac saw Tharn women unable to bear young, his diminishing people pushed back into the depths of the Thornwood by the spread of the soft, feeble human woodsmen and militia whose only advantage was their numbers. It enraged him to see his proud tribe ousted from their homes, forced to hide amid the trees and shadows, and to evade both humans and trollkins who thrived and multiplied while his own race dwindled. This experience from his earliest days, this loathing felt even before he could elucidate his reasons, lies at the root of Cromac's hatred for humans and trollkins. As a youth, he witnessed his eldest sister, a fierce blood tracker boasting many kills, gunned down by a rabble of rifle-wielding soldiers on the bumbler on the bramble rut. He mourned her passing by letting it fill him with all-consuming rage. Cromac fell upon the soldiers with an axe in each hand and slaughtered them to a man. Though he ate the flesh of their bodies, he did not feast on their hearts, for he thought to do so would give them too much honor. Even today, he will only consume the hearts of those he considers worthy foes, disdaining lesser men as meat unworthy of offering to the devourer. Cromac descended into the long hours of darkness on villages and towns within the Thornwood to slaughter all he could find before he reached the fullness of manhood. Cromac had accumulated an impressive collection of trophies. Something set Cromac apart from other Tharn, something more than just his birthright as eldest-born son of the chief of the Bloodsmith Hoth. The wind whispered words only he could hear, and the howls of wolves resonated in his heart even when he walked as a man. He took the path of a shaman and learned the blood rites of sacrifice, but somehow he knew there was more to learn. Cromac had, in fact, been born with the wilding, the ability to view natural world with the eyes of black clads and harness the worm's power in a way unheard of among the Tharn. The connection to the worm that is the blood rite of all Tharn grants them the power of transformation. This connection to the druidic wellspring of power combined with the Tharn gifts to bring forth the wild savagery and strength beyond any other among his people. Yet this came at the price, invoking form of wild madness that unlocks the most primal essence of the predatory spirit. Cromac entered the beast mind when he transformed and became the Walking Death, an avatar of slaughter with axes in his hands. When Cromac takes the beast form, 
It seems as though the worm looks through him, and he knows only hunger and the need to kill. Kruger, the Stormlord, once called Stormfather by Tharn, came to Cromac and instructed him to use this power. Cromac never formally entered the Circle Orbros as a druid. His status remains that of something other, yet he knows the ways and commands a power similar to theirs. When, in his untransformed state, he is recognized as Tharn King with great wisdom and cunning, as well as a ruthless courage. He marshals forces other Tharn can't comprehend, able to reach into the minds of man or beast to unleash the resilience and rage of the predator within. Gifted enemies beset by his power lose all reason, their magic forgotten amid the clash of primal impulses. At his command the earth opens with hot exhalation of breath and chilling howl, groaning with the hunger to consume flesh. Sharp jagged stones becoming like teeth. He understands lunar feast rites as deeply as any Tharn shaman, yet his exposure to the mysteries of Orbros enhances his insight. The lore he has brought from the druids has aimed his people and led to great victories. Though Cromac did not remain under Kruger's instructions for long, he remains one of the few humans Cromac truly respects. The Stormlord returned to his people, though oaths and promises were made that would not fade with time. Cromac's unique power soon drew the attention of another great druid who would first earn and eventually betray his loyalty. Knowing the key role she played in breaking the curse of the Ten Ills that afflicted his people, Cromac viewed Morvana the Autumn Blade with a mixture of all lust and a deeper longing that unsettled him. He saw her as the salvation of his race and an immortal vision of female perfection. For years he served Morvana as bodyguard and enforcer and watched his people return to strength. Eventually her darker side revealed itself. As her manipulation and disregard for Tharn lives disillusioned Cromac and let him see her with fresh eyes. Cromac turned his back on Morvana and returned to the service of his old mentor, who welcomed him as a vital asset. Regardless of which black lad he serves, Cromac knows he was born to embody destruction and slaughter and he has much work to do in the days ahead. Lucky enough, I've never had to face this particular monster in battle. Although from the stories I've heard, when they say transformation, they're not talking him just, you know, mentally switching out. He literally turns into what some people describe as a war beast himself. Destruction incarnate, his double axes cutting through warjacks and war beasts alike. When he switches over to beast mode though, the only thing that you don't have to worry about is spells, because. By the time he gets to that, he ain't gonna be using them. Although he definitely does embody the Tharn's man-eating flesh and rage and destruction that they're so well known for in these woods. I pray that none of you ever have to run into him and fight him one-on-one, -on -one, if you can avoid it. Moving on to Cromac, Champion of the Worm, Circle Tharn Warlock. Cromac's howl is the first and final note of a chorus of a thousand untamed beasts, the deepest and most primal secret of the worm's chosen stir within his blood. His scattered tribes hold a great feast in his honor, for they see him as their greatest king. They offer him goblets fashioned from the skulls of victims and filled with fermented blood, together with hearts of Maro collected from the most dangerous prey. He takes the best warriors of these tribes into battle, letting them join in the carnage and to prove their dedication to the worm. He is called Cromac the Ravenous, king of all Toths and champion of the worm. Through Cromac's bond with the beast of all shapes, Someday soon the nations of man will fall. For many years, the Tharn King served the black lads of the Circle Oberos, believing their aims aligned with his. 
While Cromac respects some among them, he now refuses to serve them as an inferior and demands the respect that he is due. Cromac made binding promises to Wormwood, Tree of Fate, as avatar of the Worm. He ties to this entity, bred unease among the ranking druids who have only indirect influence over the tree's action. One of Wormwood's far-reaching schemes resulted in Cromac battling the Trollkin chieftain Madrak Ironhide to claim the axe called Rothrock, the World Ender. Amid the strife, Cromac witnessed the worm made manifest on Cain, a blessed revelation. Since then, he has achieved mastery over his bestial form and no longer feels the need to return to his human guise. He walks amid his tribes as a hulking creature beyond the size and strength of any other chieftain, yet his every thought is his own. None who see him can doubt he is the worm's true champion. Ancient powers guide Cromac's fate and have awarded him with pivotal roles in eternal battles between civilization and the wilds. The axe he now bears is the mighty artifact with a bloody history connected to the ancestors of the Tharn. Thousands of years ago, the weapon was lost to those loyal to the worm in the last clash between great Morgur tribes and the Kalashians. Now it has found its way back to those who would wield it to tear down the walls of mankind. Cromac takes it upon himself to reawaken the full power of Rathrock, even if the axe requires an unending tide of blood in return. Great, so now he's not only monster mode all the time, he now has his mind with it too. Perfect. And he has the axe that he stole back from Madruck Ironhide. And that axe is way more powerful than his two twin axes he used in his previous form. And not only that, it looks like one of his special powers is he can make everyone in his uh, battle group way more powerful and way more armored. So that's not a good sign. Again, I hope I don't have to verse this guy in battle, because, uh, yeah, at his speed, strength, and armor, he would just tear through me. Well, maybe. I'd be on the defensive a lot. Alright, next warlock we're moving on to is Kruger and all of his variations. We're gonna start off with Krumer the Stormseer, just because that's the earliest reports we have of Kruger. And at this stage, he's not even a warlock, he's actually a lesser warlock, which is you know, like their underlings that we've talked about before. Kruger is a long-lived warlock due to his clever strategies and willingness to sacrifice others for the cause. This version of Kruger, however, shows him as a slightly more idealistic youth when he is not so yet willing to sacrifice anyone for anything for power. This doesn't mean, of course, that he isn't above stealing little power to boost from time to time. And again, like most young warlocks, we do not know all that much about his youth because, well, <laughs> I imagine Circle Oberos, they lose a lot of young warlocks, so they don't really write stuff down or tell people about them. At this particular stage of him, he apparently has the ability to actually draw more magical power from Construct Warbeast around him, which, I don't know, if a rock's around you, it's almost like charging from some sort of uh, voltaic battery or something. He also has the ability to transfer any kind of deadly damage onto his Warbeast as well without having to use any kind of mental force, almost like it's second nature to him. At this stage though, it's only a very minor aspect of what his power will be in our coming readings. Speaking of which, let's move on. Kruger the Stormwrath. Universally feared and respected and disliked within the Circle's hierarchy. Kruger the Stormwrath counts no one as friend and no druid as his equal. He earned his name by performing deeds such as climbing atop the highest watcher peak and calling down a storm powerful enough to raise the waters of Lake Rimixdale and nearly drown the city of Orvin. 
Kruger believes the black clads have become too soft and require his guidance to return to the days of plague and flood. Born in a small village north of Seoul, Kruger is among the few who have survived the wilding and protectorate of Meenith. The firstborn of the Menite priest, Kruger was quickly condemned when he began manifesting his strange gifts. Proclaiming him the spawn of the devourer, Kruger's father tied him to the stake and prepared to burn him alive. Druids of the circle intervened with bloody swiftness. They took the boy to a hidden dwelling near the ruins of Arkinia to be tutored by Mosar, the desert walker, a harsh master renowned for his teaching the power of desert and ocean by cruel example. He once stripped Kruger and abandoned him in the desert hills east of Arkinia, forcing him to return using his own strength and cunning. Kruger delights in bringing suffering into the cities of humanity. He would shatter the walls of Sol and Caspia and drive the inhabitants out into the gulf to drown. The Stormrats holds a particular scorn for Meenith and hopes to wipe all trace of the gods' despicable sycophants from the face of Cain. Baptized in the blood of Midnights, Kruger's great spear contains the tongue of the worm, an endless lightning storm held captive in the heart of its wooden shaft. Kruger revels in the devourer more than his peers. He has attended the savage rites of Tharn and other berserker tribes on the fringes of humanity, offering human sacrifices on druid stones and standing awash in the blood to gnaw on the hearts of the slain. Kruger fully embraced the destructive energies he has learned to unleash. The Stormwrath rides a constant wave of barely restrained fury, visible to anyone brave enough to look into his eyes. His deep and unquenchable rage will be satisfied only when every institution of civilized man lies crumbled, burned, or drowned at his feet. This particular warlock I have versed actually many, many a time. He is swift, he is fast, he has the ability of lightning, so I recommend you ground yourself to anything when you're fighting up against him. I've watched entire units just be decimated by an arc of explosion just jumping straight through the unit. It has been uh, unsettling and the smell of burnt electrocuted flesh is not something that I would like to recall again. Brings back memories that we will not be going over today in this class. Let's move on to Kruger the Stormlord, Circle Black Clad Warlock. Even the three omnipotents of the Circle Oberos admit Kruger is among the most powerful of their order. Moreover, he has the vision to apprehend the greatness does not come as a reward for humility and silent dedication. He intends to rattle the Circle Oberos like a rickety house caught in a storm. If he makes enemies of the most powerful individuals of Western Amoran in the process, so be it. Kruger lost patience with the Omnipotents after the death of the Omnipotent Orgonus, predecessor of Lordus. He expected to join their number, but then was denied. His path would have been easier with the proper rank and authority, but the work ahead is too important for eternal bickering to stand in his way. It was after he came to the aid of Cromac the Ravenous and the Thornwood that Kruger began to realize how limited his perspective had become. How could he grasp the larger forces at work when tied down to meaningless errands and petty scheming? He knows now the omnipotent's game is to sit in the background spinning their spider webs while keeping subordinates ignorant of the deeper follies in which the circle has tumbled. Kruger believes himself to be the only man who can make a lasting change in the world. He will take the steps the rest of his peers are too cowardly to attempt. The Stormlord proved his audacity after he decided his order had been too compliant about the dragon's corrupting Orbos. Rather than seeking to confront Everblight, Kruger defied the Omnipotent's order and brought the matter before another dragon. Blightergast listened to Kruger's describe the threat Everblight represented to the dragon's alliance against Lord Torek. 
prompting other members of that alliance to stir again for the first time in centuries. Waking up the dragons, perfect. Though unsuccessful in destroying Everblight, Kruger's action did cause the disembodied dragon many setbacks and slowed the spread of its legion. Furthermore, he accomplished his secondary goal of weakening the other dragons, as well as Torak himself, all of whom were injured in the clash. Kruger considers the disaster and widespread destruction that came of this a necessary price, for he believes the aftermath will allow them to strike the first significant blow against civilization in his order's long history. The only question is whether the Circle can survive the days ahead to see its ultimate goal fulfilled. Kruger has gathered his own army, its ranks filled with those discontent with their place in the Circle's hierarchy or drawn to the Stormlord's bold and uncompromising vision. Bringing lightning and storm, blood and battle, he promises his followers to return the Circle to its primordial roots, where the weak make way for the strong and where druids are free to drink deeply from nature's unchecked power. I've also gone up against this guy a number of times as well. All ranged weapons with this man's ability to control winds and storms around him are about near useless. By the time you can even use your ranged weapon, you're already up in melee range anyway, so there's almost no point. And artillery barrages are out of the question because he can just move freaking bombs wherever he sees fit to land. And again, he's also a master of electricity, so you have anything that's affected by electricity, i.e. warjacks, or i.e. human flesh, it will just remove them off the field anyway, with a disgusting, smoldering, sizzling noise of electricity as it cracks through flesh. And on top of that, he is a pretty fantastic magic user as well. Alright, moving on to his teacher. Musar, the Desert Walker, Circle Black Clad Warlock. Of the three omnipotents presiding over the Circle Oberos, the eldest and most enigmatic is Mozart the Desert Walker. The Desert Walker believes the bitter waste of the Bloodstone marches perfectly reflects Orboros' myriad nature. The unforgiving power of nature pervades this climate, and the desert shrugs off all feeble efforts of civilization to hold it at bay. No city can outlast the shifting dunes, and Mozart there is no beauty purer than the cleansing wrath of a sandstorm. Mozart's milky eyes mark him as blind. This trait hinders him little, however. His awareness of Obros is perfect, letting his conscience flow into his surroundings. He takes in the entity of landscapes around him. The ley lines answer to his will, and through them, he has a far better grasp of places both near and far than he could have ever attained with his eyes alone. Mozart has learned to manifest the tremendous power of his environment. The land cracks open at his command to swallow enemies whole, pillars of salty rep to block narrow passes, and blistering heat hammers down from the sky to punish beasts and machines alike. Even more terrifying is that these powers seem to cost him very little, as if the greatest feats of natural energies require nothing more than a stray thought while walking the shifting sands. Mozart's loathing of humanity is legendary. He barely tolerates interactions with even his fellow blacklads, and only when absolutely necessary. Those within the Order who learn Mozart's tutored Kruger immediately gain insight into the metal of the Stormlord's soul. Mozart inflicts a cruel savagery upon his apprentice in an effort to grind him into perfection, raise away his flaws, and elevate him, bleeding and screaming to the heights of his inner potential. That Kruger has become so formidable is proof that Mozart's method, 
Relentless as the sun itself, Mozart emanates scornful disregard as palpable as hot wind blowing across the dunes. For long decades, Mozart was rarely seen at the gatherings of the other leaders of the Circle Obros, but recent events revealed his trend. It seems his blind eyes have shown him the shadows of black clouds on the other omnipotents failed to perceive. It was Mozart who revealed the threat posed by Cain by the whole in reality attached to the void seer Mordecai of the scorn. Mozart was also the one who gathered the omnipotents in 609 AR to prevent the full manifestation of the devourer worm and the bloodstone marches through that breach. He has shown no desire to retreat back into the waste sense. Though his presence causes discomfort for most of his peers, others in the order realize Mozart is among the few with the strength of will to deal with fringe allies like the Stormlords and Wormwood. Given the scope of this task before them, now more than ever, Circle requires his stern leadership and an inexhaustible mystical power. I've actually ever gone up against Mozart once, and honestly, I was so far away from him, I didn't even realize he was blind. Although, as it said, it doesn't affect him at all, because you can see the natural world around him as easily as you can feel the wind on your skin. His salt pillars create a whole issue, because they're not just a cloud. They are a pillar that you have to clock into to get through. I would also say, I think he's probably the most powerful magic user that we've run into in the druids as well. So, look out for this guy. He may look like a like an old, old shriveled up man, but he is definitely a deadly one. Let's move on to Morvana the Autumn Blade, Circle Blackclad Warlock. Morvana calls the living and restores the dying with equal skill. Forests spring forth at her command and tear her foes asunder as the trees draw sustenance from the last flows of life's blood. She is the Autumn Blade, whose arrival portends the dark turning of the year. No druid willingly earns her anonymity, and many seek her favor. Known as the woman of great intelligence, ambition, and persuasive charm, Morvana revels in the intrigue within the upper ranks of the Circle Obros and sees her eventual ascension to Omnipotent as a foregone conclusion. With a seductive smile, a caress, and a calm word, she achieves more than others manage with armies or full brunt of elemental forces. Morvana was in inducted in the mysteries of spring and autumn from infancy. She matured in isolation among druids of the far south on an unnamed island off Mercer coast. Her sect knew that across the waters dragons awaited, Lord Turok in the west and Blightergast in the north. She has wrestled with the Blight and experimented with druidic powers to try and cleanse the outer scarred isles of it. Her territory has shifted north and expanded over decades on the grounds of sacred sites others once claimed now stand forest watered with the blood of Morvana's rivals. Of her peers, only Kruger has dared challenge her directly, even stealing the loyalty of one of her most formidable allies, Cromac the Ravenous. The timing of this was poor, as Morvana had been at the forefront of the Circle's battles against the Legion of Everblight. As a pragmatic woman, she found help elsewhere, convincing Kaya the Moonhunter to assist her. Morvana has endured a number of difficult setbacks against the Legion, including the Battle of the Castle of the Keys, the subsequent pursuit of the Legion forces north, and the efforts to keep Everblight's minions from the disembodied Athank, secured first by the Crix and later by Signar. She blames Kruger for the Order's botched attempts to prevent the expansion of Everblight's power, and the Stormlord diverted critical assets from the fight with his own unrelated schemes and his plan to unleash the dragons led only to widespread destruction. Morvana's primary flaw is her arrogance. 
She often underestimates others, relying on manipulation over true loyalty. She has no inclination of deeper attachments. She is willing to stand in the gateway between life and death and feels mentally qualified to judge who should live or who will be destroyed. I've actually never gone up against Mirvana, at least not this rendition of her. But from what the archives say, she has some interesting spells, such as the ability to pull living souls to increase her magic power or use her magic power to help bring people back from the dead for her own army or use people dying on the field to just pop into woods and create entire forests out of armies that are being killed by her own men. It's actually really interesting and terrifying. Moving on to Morvana, the Dawn Shadow, Circle Black Clad Warlock. Nature's cycles are inherently contradictory. With night turning to day and life to death and moments, Morvana balances upon the sharp divide between light and dark, life and death, strength and weakness. She draws her strength from the rhythms of the natural world and yet invokes her power to cull enemies of the Circle Obros, cutting the strands of fate, tying them to Cain. More than most, she possesses a keen understanding of the power of blood and sacrifice and can harness the most primal energies to advance her agenda. Morvana is counted among the most politically shrewd of the Circle's leaders, a woman who has accumulated tremendous influence and power while navigating the sometimes treacherous upper echelons of the organization. While some of her rivals cannot see past her ambitions and her facilities to manipulation, she has bent all her considerable power towards the destruction of the Order's enemies. Foremost among them is the Legion of Everblight. Her political machinations suffered a slight setback after failed attempts to eliminate her greatest rival, Kruger the Stormlord. That he must pay for his disobedience seemed a foregone conclusion, as the Stormlord had defied not one, but all three of the Omnipotents in his quest to ally with Blighter Gast and the other dragons. Yet even when the Grand Conclave found Kruger guilty and sentenced him to death, Ormuth's intervention preserved him. The unexpected failure did not deter Mirvana, but only forced her to adapt and change her tactics. She has been seen in fighting, divided the ranks, and created further division, and she shifted her goals to restore her power based through subtler means, all while coordinating strikes against the enemies that have become an ever-escalating threat. While her ambitions is undiminished, Morvana has felt compelled to enter into alliance she might have once seemed unthinkable. She quickly restored her standing among her peers, regaining influences with the alaristy no other black-clad could have managed. Kruger's more recent failures to eliminate Everblight has reinvigorated Morvana. Her rival's risky gambit left him unable to resist Don Shadow's maneuvering. She has played the part of cunning leader and manipulator, absorbing some of his domain into her own or allegating them into other druids she counts as friends and allies. As has long been her talent, she has turned the recent chaos within the Order to her benefit. The Dawn Shadow now joins battle with renewed purpose, wielding all the tremendous power at her disposal. Astride her Skirovic, Mountain Goat, the power of life and blood is hers to command, and those who follow her entrust their lives to her discretion. The ebb and flow of the natural order rests within Morvana's fingertips, guiding her towards her destiny. I am lucky enough never have to gone up against this particular version of Morvana, but judging by the archives, her with her giant mountain goat makes her incredibly fast. She also can remove scars on the field of battle when her men are dying around her. She also has the ability to manipulate 
how well her attacks are going from the men around her just by cutting herself. So, blood magic, of course. Not only that, she has the power to, of course, control the battlefield, creating fogs and all sorts of fun stuff that makes her very, very deadly, quick, and a very hard warlock to track down. Let's talk about Tanith, the Feral Song. Circle black-clad warlock. Fearless, strong, and unrelenting, Tanith the Feral Song has emerged as one of the most efficient enforcers belonging to the Circle Oberos. She excels at those duties requiring extra muscle and a strong stomach, accepting tasks some young black lads are loath to do, demanding the absolute loyalty from her subordinates that she gives to her superiors. Tanith never leaves an appointed task unfinished, be it striking a settlement that threatens to encroach the circle's border or punishing former allies for acts of incompetence or outright rebellion. Her powers stem from the divide between the forces of life and death, and she walks this line with the confidence many within her order find unnerving. As a child undergoing the wilding, Tanith was ostracized and eventually driven from her home by parents who did not understand the manifestations of her connection to Orboros. Only when the druids of the Circle Oberos took her in did she come to see the power of her existence. Eventually, she was placed under the tutelage of Werner the Nightbringer, one of the Order's more exclusive and ruthless potents, who shaped Tanith from a fearful child into an effective and dispassionate killer. Venor had long been both feared and respected among his peers, taking care of unpleasant tasks others shied away from or could not trust to their subordinates. Eventually, the punishment of druids who had strayed from their duties or betrayal the trust of the circle. Tanith has taken up Werner's cause and has earned a reputation of solving difficult problems. Upon completing her training, Werner presented her with a legendary staff of fate, a weapon crafted from a living branch of wormwood. Still connected to the power of being, this weapon radiates the aura of unmistakable malice and hunger. There are those within the upper echelons of the circle who believe the staff of fate to be less a gift and more a tool of transformation and instruction, one that allows the Nightbringer to continue his pupil's dark education and evolution into pure weapon of the Circle Oberos. Unlike many blackclads, Tanith reveres the Devourer Worm as more a primal font of the power Oberos. She delves deep into the mysteries of the beast of all shapes, embracing the predatory spirit inherited into the dark paths of the wilds. From Werner, she has learned the dark rites of the worm, forgotten by many among her order. And through the ancient well of knowledge, she draws the power to carry out her grim tasks. While she has no quarrels with other blackclads, Tanit's intensity and radical devotion to the devourer has distanced her from her peers. She values the lives of those warriors and beasts she commands in battle, but she is not above sacrificing her forces to achieve her aims, if necessary. On more than one occasion, she has returned from a mission a bloodied soul survivor, yet she is ever eager to carry out her next mission. Well, fortunately, I have never actually versed up against Danith the Feral Song either, but according to the archives, she has... The ability to blend in with forest stuff, making her nigh invisible. She has the ability with her ranged weapons to completely ignore things like walls and bushes from being attacked from a ranged attack. And her weapon not only is 
of course powerful for any kind of warlock weapon, but it also has a annoying habit of putting Shadowbind on somebody, and Shadowbind is a very useful spell, especially among the druids, that actually makes people almost turn uh, visible as if they're melding in and out from cane to arcane, lowering defenses, lowering shields. It's very annoying to try to get off. Outside of that, of course, she is definitely more of a melee type caster who wants to get in there, kill a lot of stuff, have her people do the same, and get out before she can be hit. Of course, as every warlock, very dangerous to take on hand to hand. Let's move on. Bradicus Thoral the Rune Carver, Circle Black Clad Warlock. Bradigus Thoral is a master of stone and elemental power, an expert craftsman well-versed in the esoteric arts required to construct the great standing stones and celestial fulcrums that harness Cain's geomatic forces. Designed to last millennia, these stones manipulated the flow of the world's energy, the very blood of Orboros, directing it accordingly to Thoral's complex designs. Without his tireless efforts, the recent conflicts across Western Amoran would have robbed the circle of one of its most vital resources. The sights that Thoral's towering monuments invariably within the deepest wilderness where Cain's energies are the most primal are among the circle's most sacred places. Often the order must reclaim these sites from enemies who would despoil the power for their own ends. Such tasks bring Thoral into the domain of many blacklads who seek to add to his power to their own, but the rune carver is unmoved by attempts to curry his favor. Thoral's work is now more important than ever, as recent events have wounded the Ley Lines network in ways previously unimagined. These disturbances include the emergence of the machine cultist of the Convergence of Cyrus, who drink of Orbos' power to fuel their corrupt work. The Dragon Blight that has been spread through many critical nodes in an effort to stop the Dragon of Everblight and the emergence of the Beast of All Shapes itself on Cain, which racked the Bloodstone Marches with unnatural storms and quakes. If not for the ceaseless work of Thoral and his hand-picked Stone Shapers, there could be no hope for, of restoring the fractured Leyline network left in the wake of these disasters. It has taken him years to undo the damage that was inflicted in a matter of a few short hours, and there remains much still to be done. Thoral has no qualms about cooperating with other blackclads to focus on the project at hand, but otherwise he eschews political machination within the circle. Overall, he prefers the silent company of wolds, or the gentle hum of the power flowing through the ley lines to the grating sound of the spoken word. Comfortable with his place in the organization and unyielding in the face of adversity, he focuses on whatever work is before him. He is a steadfast and loyal leader who diligently tends to his responsibilities, knowing his labors are essential to the smooth running of the entire order. Without the Leyline network, the Circle Oberos would have only a fraction of its reach and power. Only in battle does Thoral break from his aloof demeanor. To him, combat is an outlet or unexpressed rage at those who would disrupt or destroy his greater work. The very earth responds to his will, and he easily wields the titanic power flowing beneath the surface of Cain. At his command, massive rocks rise from the ground to obliterate men and beasts, and the mighty wolds stride forth from the wilderness to crush the enemies between their stony fists. I've actually faced Bradicus numerous times and been hit with those stones 
a lot more than I would like to admit and tell you they sting also his affinity just to use constructs over the war beast is nice in one regard but terrible in the next partially because you know it's easy to attack a wild beast but when it comes to you know people hitting rocks they do a lot less damage for a lot more work also in the archives it says because he works with primary just constructs he has an affinity to make them use their unnatural animuses to help aid him in battle more cheaply without his direct intervention so of course he's very dangerous as every warlock moving on to uno the falconer as we've come across in many of our courses uno the falconer is actually a journeyman warlock which of course how the archives find information about such early on warlocks i will never know let's begin through the eyes of her soaring beast, Una the Falconer gazes down upon the wilderness of Western Imorin. Griffins and birds of prey leap into the sky at her command and fill the airs with their shrieks. To Una's enemies, this sound heralds death from the skies. To her, this is a song of victory. Guided by her will, Una's falcons strike with keen accuracy, darting among the enemies and slashing with deadly talons before returning to their master. Each of her birds was raised from an egg, plucked by her hand from remote nest. She has trained them to serve with fearsome efficiency as both tools of the hunt and weapons of war. In battle she sends these sharp-eyed scouts aloft, and through them she observes the enemies from above to identify weaknesses in their formation. Whenever she travels, she keeps her falcons close, her constant companions and instruments of her will. Born among the Balatov people of Kodor's northern Kavax hills, Una was trained as a child in their ancient traditions of hunting with falcons. She showed extraordinary talent for handling the dangerous birds, directing them with proficiency beyond her years. It was her connection with these birds that shaped her wilding. As a young teen, Una discovered she was able to touch the mines and command them. Detecting her wilding, the northern blacklads took Una into their ranks. Her mentor, a beastmaster of considerable power, taught her to expand her connection with her falcons into an affinity for the griffins favored by the circle. Soon she went to serve under other beastmasters, overseeing the order's far-flung griffin roosts, traveling to the far corners of Amoran to learn how these beasts are protected, fledged, and readied for battle. Though such tasks were considered her duty as a junior druid, Una took to the work with uncommon passion. Tending to these great predators, she has scaled the rotten horn and delved into the frozen Scarfell. Her talent with flying beasts is exceptional. Under her control, they strike with the same unsettling precision as her falcons. These affinities seem to Una a natural extension of many years of working closely with small birds of prey, and her griffins feel such a strong connection to her that they instinctively protect her at all costs. There is nothing Una enjoys more than linking her mind to a soaring falcon or a griffin as it touches the skies. Other druids often find her reserved and uninterested, but they are unable to comprehend the joy she finds in communion with her beast. Her beloved griffins and falcons grant her both an exhilaration of flight and the satisfaction of destroying her enemies. The skill and efficiency with which she has accomplished all challenges set before her has earned her notice among the upper echelons, who predict her talent foreshadow her ascendancy as one of the greatest beastmasters of the Circle Oberos. I have never actually went up against Yuna the Falconer before, at least not that, not to my uh, knowledge. Unless, of course, you know, I've suffered a lot of concussions, so I do forget things every now and again. According to the archives, 
this particular version of her in her younger form. She actually only used birds exclusively as her assistant war beast. Which makes sense since she is called a falconer. Also, she uses those falcons to great effect. Being able to just see through everything because she's seen everything from bird's eye view, top to bottom. So things like cloud effects, forests, intermediate models, uh, she just sees right through them because well, they're technically not there from above. Let's move on to her adult form, shall we? Una, the Sky Hunter, circle black clad warlock. No longer a junior druid learning the ways of the world, Una has grown into a powerful member of the Circle Oberos. Through her time tending the various griffin roosts of the circle, she has developed an unparalleled affinity with the winged beast and employs them to wrest the skies from any who oppose her upon the newly acquired territories. With the griffins as her weapons, she cuts down opponents with merciless speed and accuracy gifted to all great hunters of the devourer worm. Griffins are a precious commodity of the Circle Oberos. Given the beast's limited population, Blackclads have worked diligently over the years to maintain sufficient roosts to preserve them. Acquiring young griffins has been an ongoing struggle, and with the Circle's recent setbacks, the need to expand their roosts has never been greater. With this in mind, several years ago, Una undertook a bold move of venturing beyond the fringes of the Leyline Network in hopes to expand breeding efforts into new lands. When Una first entered the Unknown Wilds, she kept a regular contact with other members of the Order, relaying her movements and finding through messages delivered by hawks that accompanied her. Her journey began in the northern limits of the Order's territory, and from these travels deep into the frozen tundra and mountain ranges that crown Amorin. Early successes proved the wisdom of this difficult endeavor. To the surprise of her skeptical superiors, she managed to find several previously unknown roosts. This discovery went against the common belief that it was only the black-clad's care that had prevented the extinction of the griffins, and it spurred her to venture even deeper into the unexplored territories. Her messages grew infrequent and finally ceased altogether. For almost two years, no member of the Circle had any word from Una, and many believed her dead, killed either by the harsh northern environs or by the very griffins she sought to secure. The Order resigned itself to yet another loss, and the Una's territories and responsibilities were given to the others to manage. Then one day she reappeared from the northern borders of omnipotent Delikov's domain, possessed of a new confidence and mature power. During her time in isolation, Una refined her arcane command over the elements. She is now able to call upon the howling gales and updrafts of the highest mountain peaks to shape the flow of battle and cut apart her foes with the wind's razor edge. While Una has said little about her travels beyond the reach of the Order's territory, her eyes are now more distant and cold than ever. The deep changes in her young druid are undeniable, as are her formidable powers over wind and sky. I've never actually versed this particular warlock either. However, in the archives, we have some interesting information, such as her control over griffins have made them even more mobile than griffins usually are, and griffins are a flying creature, so also terrifying. Also, fun fact, when they say she uses the wind as a weapon, they're not kidding. Her wind is the weapon. It, it's, not like a, it's not like a bow. It's not like a gun. It's literally the wind. And she uses it with profound perfection, which is kind of remarkable because most warlocks or war casters, for that matter, usually have to cast spells to be able to control the wind. Usually a sign importance or some sort of razor wind spell. But nope, she just uses it with 
crazy accuracy. And I believe all the rest of her actual spells are also very closely related to wind. Alright, let's move on to the last warlock in our archives that we will be discussing. Wormwood, Tree of Fate, and Cassius the Oathkeeper. Circle Warlock and Black Clad Solo. The druids of the Circle Obros have made countless alliances and bargains and have manipulated myriad groups to ensure their agendas. But some of these arrangements have been far more lasting than others. The first omnipotent sealed ominous bargains with manifestations of the worm given form on Cain. Entities such as the Lord of Feast and Wormwood, also called the Tree of Fate. These primal entities proved a formidable but demanding allies. Before Meenith gave humanity its first law and taught them to erect its first wall, the carnivorous tree named Wormwood had taken root. Unlike most trees, it was thirsty for blood and quickly manifested an unusual deep and predatory intelligence. These first druids used their influence to persuade the devourer cultists to conduct sacrifices below the spread of its branches. The scattered tribes of the hinterlands traveled great distances to pour libations of blood upon the soil above its roots and hang skeletal offerings from its leafless limbs. These terrible rites accumulated in a great ritual wherein thousand men and beasts were bled out to give the tree a worthy feast. Unfettered powers of creation thrummed in the air as the roots burst forth to entwine itself around the young druid through which the tree spoke its name. The rite gave Wormwood a human voice, and the first communion a lasting pact was sealed. Only the omnipotents know the exact nature of this agreement, but since the time one druid in every age must uphold the special covenant with the Tree of Fate, the druid gives over life and soul to become a conduit between Wormwood and the human master of the Circle Oberos. Wormwood's unfathomable mind does not perceive Cain or even the passage of days as mortals do, and so requires an intermediary, a filterer to lesser minds fixed in time. Effortlessly, tapping into the natural energies below the skin of the world, the tree comes and goes at its whim. Though it appears to be permanently rooted, it can disappear in a shimmer of fog and manifest elsewhere. Its ability to drink from the ley lines and to wield the power to affect the world are vast and fearsome, putting even the omnipotence to shame. Recent years have seen the Wormwood yield this power and vanish entire armies and send them where it wills. For generations, Wormwood has made its home at the heart of various dark forests and on remote mountains. Devourer cultists seek out to nourish their primal gods with the blood of sacrifice. The ranking druids of the Circle Oberus periodically offer their own supplications in exchange for its wisdom. Wormwood is invited to attend the highest circle deliberations, where it has special privileges. When the Omnipotents cannot unanimously agree, Wormwood is empowered to intervene providing its unique perspective on the world. Mortal flesh ages, and when the time comes for Wormwood to choose a new conduit, the potent gathers their wilders. These novice druids are chosen for their youth, stamina, and mystical potential. Being selected for this group is a dubious honor. Leading druids may arrange for favored subordinates to be absent from the selection ceremony. On the night of the Giramore Feast, a sacred rite celebration one of the most ancient champions of the Devourer Worm, Wormwood, casts aside its old Oathkeeper who perishes. At the time moment, Wormwood's roots entwine around its selected candidate, who speaks the ancient word of the Oath. Once this vow is completed, the tree integrates itself into the Druid's flesh.
Oathkeeper's personality lingers beyond this joining. Each generation of the tree's perspective is colored by the minds of its conduit. Cassius, the current chosen, was a cunning and intuitive druid who earned the jealous ire of his master over some perceived affront. The old master thought this slight avenged when Wormwood selected his troublesome apprentice, but his satisfaction was short-lived. The mentor soon perished and was forgotten, while Cassius persists. Perhaps as a result of his influence, Wormwood has been increasingly active in recent decades. Wormwood's goals often coincide with those of the Circle Oberos, but its ultimate ends are its own. It pursues an agenda heedless of the Circle's stated aim, and at time the tree's actions run contrary to the desires of the Omnipotence. This has never been more evident than when the tree and its conduit conspired to release the Devourer Worm physically on Cain. Only with the combined efforts of the Omnipotence and powerful Trolkan Mystics prevented the Worm from rampaging on Cain. Such actions have sustained the relationship between Wormwood and the Circle's leadership. It is too potent an ally for them to disregard. Though the tree accepts any sacrifice, it thrives best on blood and souls of its own enemies. The war hosts it leads seem to become particularly vicious when it urges them onward. In every conflict, the tree of fate judges the worth of the fallen, allies and enemies alike, as it soaks its roots with their gore. Its violence suggests the end awaiting all things should the devourer fully awaken. I can't say I've ever run into a man-eating tree before, outside the little tiny ones that the druids like to use that can absorb souls and people channel th spells through it. I guess this might just be the, I don't know, the grandfather of those types of trees. Uh, in the archives it says this thing even can absorb somebody's soul, making it even more of a terror on the battlefield. Terror being the prime word since it is technically just a living tree. Also even more terrifying if you were just on an expedition in the middle of some dark forest somewhere and you ran into one of the oldest living used warlocks of Obros and his druid apprentice to just destroy your entire army or just make it disappear and pop up somewhere else. Truly terrifying to behold. Alrighty class, that concludes every known Circle Obros warlock that has been brought to the forefront in our archives. If any more warlocks are discovered in the near future, of course we'll be doing a side course on them or bringing them up eventually in one of our courses. Prepare for next week, we'll be finishing off all the warcasters for Kodor, so that should be fun. And as always, your homework will be to like, subscribe, and let your friends know about this course so we can continue to grow this channel and I can continue to bring out this phenomenal lore on War Machines, Hordes, and of course the Iron Kingdoms, brought to you by the fantastic writers at Privateer Press. And as always, class dismissed. We'll see you next week.